Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today for our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Luke. Today we are in Chapter 5, The Big Catch of Fish. Now, I know what you're thinking. What in the world does the call of the first disciples after this big catch of fish have anything to do with the practical affairs of family life? Well, the answer is incredibly much more than you could possibly imagine, but just stick with me as we go through this broadcast, because as we study what's behind this big catch of fish could greatly influence your parenting strategies and insights for raising children in the 21st century. Let's start with the text itself. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. When the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had ceased speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish, and as their nets were breaking, they beckoned their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Henceforth you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, just a P.S., it's not related to our topic today, but notice as the first healing miracle of Jesus takes place in Peter's house, and for those who have ears to hear, where is Peter's house? It's called the Catholic Church. In here, where does this great miracle and call of the disciples come about? Where is Jesus teaching from? Peter's boat. It's the Ark of Salvation, also the Catholic Church. So don't jump ship because of a group of bad and corrupt clerics. No, this is Peter's boat. Stick in it. Any 16-foot runabouts that look real flashy coming up alongside. We have an ocean across. Don't jump ship. Okay. Now, what's going on here? You know, you might say, well, is Steve having a uh, children's Bible story hour. Uh, it's a nice little fishing story that the future disciples couldn't catch any fish all night, and they were hungry, so Jesus helped them to catch lots of fish. Jesus is so terrific. End of nice Bible story. No, actually, you have before you in these 11 verses an important predictor of a massive change in world history and what would happen during the course of the Catholic Church. Jesus said to Simon, and this is the key, 
chapter 5 and verse 10. Do not be afraid. Henceforth, you will be catching men. What this account is, is a preview of what is going to come in part two of this story. Remember, St. Luke wrote a unified whole, namely the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. These are two parts of the same story. And what was going to happen in the book of Acts was a massive change. After the long night of not catching any fish, after the long night of world history, after the long period of darkness among the Gentile nations throughout the world, there is going to be a massive change that will affect the entire course of human history that many young people graduating from our schools, Catholic schools, colleges, and even universities don't know why all this switch. It didn't just happen or, you know, the apostles were such persuasive preachers or something. They never took homiletics. They never went to seminary. They were fishermen, and yet God appointed them, and something was occurring to enable the extraordinary evangelism to take place that we see in the book of Acts among the Gentiles. I'm just going to give you just some quickies here. Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people converted after Peter's first sermon. I hate to <laughs> my first sermon would probably be a Back when I was a Protestant pastor, probably be a good idea if, if nobody deconverted. And here, 3,000 convert on the first day. A little later in chapter 2, it says the Lord added to their number day by day. And then the biggie, what goes on in Antioch, and this is the part of the world that's having so much trouble in Syria as I speak. But in Acts chapter 11, it says a, the Gentiles. Now, this is a shock Gentiles don't respond in large numbers to the truth of God, and yet a great number believed and turned to the Lord. In Acts chapter 11, a little further, Barnabas says in Antioch, there was such a large company that was added to the Lord. And I can tell what was going on in Barnabas' hands. Hey, this is really out of control. Just like in the fishing story. There was so many fish being caught. They, hey, partners, come over here. You're going to have to help us pull in all these fish. And both boats started sinking. Barnabas is saying, wow, this is getting out of control. There's so many there's so many Gentiles converting. So he goes off, very wise choice, finds Paul, brings him back uh, with him to Antioch, and they taught a large company of people. In Acts chapter 13, this is just their first missionary tour. They preached one Sabbath in the synagogue, and they said, we'll be back next week. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. And then my favorite is Acts chapter 18. And you might be sitting there kind of an older parent, you have a young adult child who's a million and a half miles away from the faith, living in a moral lifestyle, and you've given up hope uh, years ago. Well, this is why Corinth is my, my favorite miracle in the book of Acts. And I've just gave you a whole string of miracles in the book of Acts with all these Gentiles converting. But Corinth was a special case. It was a, a Navy town. It was a seafarer's town. It was, it was, uh, San Francisco with New Orleans during Mardi Gras, 
warped together, multiplied times 10 hundred. Okay, this was a bad city. This was an immoral city. And Paul had just been in Athens and, you know, the intellectuals kind of gave him a hard time there. So he came to Corinth and just rampant immorality and drunkenness. This place was crazy. And I know what he was thinking. Well, it's time to move on because this group is beyond God's grace. And in the middle of the night, God came to St. Paul. He said, do not be afraid, but speak for I am with you. And this is the, this is the zinger. I have many people in this city. And then St. Paul ended up staying there for months, teaching all the scores and hundreds of believers coming into the Catholic Church in the most unlikely place probably in the Roman Empire. This is what happened, and this is the surprising catch of fish, which the miracle in Luke 5 was just a preview when Jesus said to these first disciple fishermen, saying, from henceforth, you will be catching men. Now, this is what so many people fail to do, but it's really important. We need to ask some questions, and particularly the question, what is causing this huge wave of conversions in the Gentile world? These were Gentiles, the pagan nations, the the nations who were walking in darkness, the nations that uh, had basically rejected God and the nations of the world and went their way. Yes, God was trying to work with the Jewish people, but these, these people were lost. And why the sudden reception? Again, it wasn't fancy speech. There was no Catholic radio that I'm speaking to you on. There were no Catholic publishers. I mean, these are just guys traveling around proclaiming truth, and the whole city turns out. What's going on? Well, just to kind of illustrate this, I just need to tell you a story about a rental car I had years ago in California. My staff got it for me, and if I'm not mistaken, it was a Hyundai, and I just kind of figured this is another low-powered rental car. And I had lived in California for uh, some time, and I know in California, unlike Florida where I had been living, that you can't go nice and easy and casually onto the interstate or, or you will be run off the road or run over. So getting on the interstate, I knew it was time to punch it because California, they expect you to be up to speed by the time you're up that ramp. So I punched it and I looked in the rearview mirror and I was 100, 200 yards in front of all the cars behind me. I said, what is under the hood of this car? And lo and behold, <laughs> this Hyundai was really, it was a hot stuff. It was a lot of fun to drive. And I tried it the next on-ramp, whoom, way ahead. Well, what's under the hood? What's under the hood of the fishing story? What's under the hood of the book of Acts with all of these conversions that people generally for centuries, if not millennia, had been unresponsive to the truth of God? Now, I'm going to make this quick. The answer is found in Revelation 20. Now, you might say, oh, the book of Revelation is so confusing to me. It is. That's why I'm doing a whole series of broadcasts on our companion radio show called Luke 21 Radio. It's also on podcast. And just to let you know, Revelation 20 is probably the most controversial and perhaps the most confusing chapter in the whole book of Revelation. But I'm going to give it to you so I think you're going to get it, and it's only going to take a few minutes to do so. 
And what goes on in Revelation 20 is an explanation of what goes on in the book of Acts that was predicted in Luke chapter 5. And here it is. St. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. This is symbolic language. This is like a Steven Spielberg movie. In other words, St. John is using words to convey visual images, and obviously there's some symbolism involved. And verse 2, Revelation 20, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, that is, for a long period of history, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years, that long period, was ended. After that, he must be loosed for a little while. In other words, in contrast to that long period of history, Satan will be loose for a short period of history. And then verses 7 and 8. I read to you verses 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation 20, now verses 7 and 8. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison, the opposite of being bound, and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. The purpose here isn't that Satan wouldn't have any activity in the world, but that his activity before the coming of Christ included the power to keep the nations of the world, the Gentile nations, in darkness, in deception. And with the coming of Jesus, he is going to be bound In other words, not all activity, but it specifically says he's going to be bound so that he can't deceive the nations. And as a result of his not being able to deceive the nations, when the apostles go into Gentile territory, they began proclaiming the truth about Jesus, and lo and behold, of all people, the Gentiles start responding in such numbers, they got to go get their buddies to help them with this. What is going on? Well, the gospel can have the power now to go out because as a result of the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, that the power of Satan is now bound so that the gospel can go out to the whole world. But it says twice in Revelation 20, verse 3 and verse 7, at the end of that thousand year, that long period, Satan's going to be loosed from his prison. And what's he going to do? Revelation 20 and verse 8 says he's going to go out and deceive again. Well, how successful will he be? In other words, it's kind of like it's a, a reverse test. All right, now you have the light of Christ, okay? And if you follow the light of Christ, hear and obey, and, and do what Jesus said, including watch and praying, being alert, in other words, having your radar system, being locked in, being uh, your situational awareness for the spiritual condition of the world, however you want to put it, um, you can make it. But it says that those who gather to oppose Christ, their number is like the sand of the sea. In other words, the majority of the world's population will fall again for Satan's deception at the end of time. And this is recorded in much more of a didactic, explicit fashion 
in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting the last half of verse 3 through verse 12, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it's talking about the great apostasy. And it's warning that before Christ comes, there will be this short period of time, short in relation to the long period of church history, in which there's going to be a great falling away. Apostasy is falling away. And I think the utterly, utterly, utterly shocking thing is that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the part that talks about the great apostasy, is zipped from the lectionary in the United States. So you'll never hear this warning. And if you never look under the hood of Luke chapter 5 and the miraculous evangelism that takes place in, in the book of Acts, you'll not know what's going on. Now, I've dealt with this in depth in our Luke 21 broadcast, and you're invited to get in there, but I'm just going to give it to you in a nutshell. It's my opinion, based on Scripture and a long string of papal warnings that many people have not heard or forgotten, and predictions from several godly leaders, like of which Cardinal Newman, that we are either approaching or in the great apostasy that's been zipped, again, from the lectionary, 2 Thessalonians 2, or we're living in a time that would might be called the dress rehearsal for the great apostasy. In other words, where the Gentile nations are, again, coming under that massive deception of Satan, deceiving them and getting them to follow the path of error. Now, what does all this have to do with parenting in the 21st century. Okay, we have very, very little appreciation. I'm talking about a living appreciation of the difference the Christian faith made to the world. We're not just talking about some nice religious feeling that goes on inside of our hearts or inside of a building, but the whole world was changed radically, radically changed by the advent of Christ and then the spreading of the gospel message by the apostles. It, it, it made such a tremendous change, but we take it for granted it's just the way things are because that's the way things have been for a very long time. When Revelation 20 says a thousand years, it's like 10 times 10 times 10. That's kind of a symbolic way of saying a lot. And because it's been here for so long, it's very interesting to me. I read some of these uh, folks, writers and bloggers and book writers and broadcasters who realize, and I think they properly realize, that there is a crisis going on in the Catholic Church. And again, you don't jump ship, but you, you do realize we're undergoing a crisis. And most of these writers say, well, you know, the church goes through periods of decline and then renewal, kind of like a pendulum going back and forth might go, you know, a downward scope over a period of like four or five centuries and then come back for a renewal period of four or five centuries. But what many, if not most of these writers fail to do is take into account the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the church, the teachings of the Catholic Church, the teachings of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the teaching of Revelation chapter 20, that at one point the pendulum isn't going to swing back. 
it's going to be a great apostasy right before the second coming of Christ. And at that point, rather than swinging back, it's going to swing into a depth of darkness that we have not known or experienced in any firsthand type of way for over 2,000 years. And that's a reality that's being ignored. Now, again, uh, in Luke 21 Radio, I've cited a lot of popes, including Pope Benedict XVI and St. John Paul II, Leo XIII, and going on and on. There's, there's concern from the voice of popes of the day in which we are living. Now, let's say that we are in a great apostasy or a dress rehearsal for that. In other words, we're going through a serious apostasy. Well, let's think about our catechetical programs, our spiritual formation programs for our children. These strategies worked great in the 1950s, probably worked well in the 18—I wasn't around, believe it or not. Uh, They probably worked well in the 1850s, too. But hear this. We aren't living in the 1950s or the 1980s. And if we're going through a profound change called apostasy, where a significant portion or perhaps even a majority of the world's people fall away from Christ, we can't be using 1950s strategies that work so well when you think maybe the world was normal then. Catholic schools are often following a model that worked so well in the past. And, you know, we should be. If something worked well in the past, you should follow that model. But the point I am making is that we could have entered into, and I think there's indicators that we have entered into a new period of history. So, yes, we can use good models from the past, but there's some maybe important adjustments need to be made so that our children who are going to Catholic schools or our children who are going for catechesis in Catholic parishes don't fall under the deception because it's going to be strong. Jesus warned that it's going to be strong. Now, let me pick out two groups of folks who probably think they're not going to uh, be affected by this. Traditionalists, Catholic traditionalists, and they're my friends. Okay, I'm not anti-traditionalist. I'm just Catholic and uh, I got, I had my fill of denominations and stuff like that when I was a Protestant. So I like traditionalists, but traditionalists cling very heavily to the past. And well, they should, because Catholicism is an historical faith. So is Judaism. So we want to cling to the past. But if, if we cling to the things that work so well in the past, now what's the past? Even if it's long ago, the high Middle Ages or something like that, If we've turned the corner on Western civilization, maybe even some of those things from the past that we would depend on if we only did those or or spread the appreciation for those things around more, we would be okay. And what about homeschoolers? Homeschoolers are wisely attracted to the solid things from the Catholic past. And you think, well, I I don't want my kids to fall into the secular culture, so I'm just going to dig into the past and, and, and then develop my strategy for educating my children. The same could be said for concerned Catholic parents. Well, we need to develop parenting strategies. This is the Steve Woods PS to living in a 21st century, and this is not light stuff. 
that we need to be aware that we need to develop strategies to survive an apostasy, that we are living in a different day, and many fish in the modern world are swimming in the wrong direction, the pendulum might swing back, and I certainly hope it does, I pray it does, but the pendulum, not only going into crisis mode, could go into modes that would far exceed our ability to to even think of at this point. So where do we look? One thing I would suggest is looking in the past, but not just the Middle Ages or the 1800s or the 1950s. I mean going all the way back. Go back to the beginning when the Catholic Church was living in the midst of a hostile pagan empire, because that's what Revelation said will come, come during this little season. And the great transition was just beginning, so you didn't have the great culture around you. What worked? Well, here's just one important example. There's going to be many more broadcasts as the Lord gives me breath and even a new book coming out, I hope, before too long about how to parent in the 21st century. I believe we've turned a corner, and so how can you parent successfully? But here's, here's just one important example, and it's probably one of the most important. You can't just go with the flow. If the flow of culture and radicals in the church are being sucked into apostasy, you can't go with the flow of social media, political correctness, styles, media idols, or campus lifestyles. You've got to go a different direction. And you know, it's interesting. There's a early, 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 one of the earliest, if not the earliest, Christian writings we have. It's called the Didache. It's just a Greek word, means the teaching. It's only 10 pages. I just read a catalog of over 50 pages loaded with tons of Catholic books. And you know, if you're a homeschooler, they'll tell you, yeah, you need a classic curriculum or your children will fail as a Catholic. Or you need an expensive theology of the body book or books, or your kids will fall into immorality. Or you need very expensive catechism books or the latest psychology advice you need, you need, you need. Well, I really think you need three sentences from the Didache. Three. In fact, I would like to start with the 10 very—this is only 10 pages. This is how the early converts for paganism were instructed to live as faithful Catholics. It says this, there are two ways of life, one of death and one of life, and there is a great difference between the two. See that no one leads you astray from this way of teaching. And spiritual survival— my son told me he went to a secular university. He said, Dad, it's easy. You just choose your group. He was saying what the early church says. There are two ways. And the name for the early Catholic church wasn't the Catholic church. It was simply called The Way. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 236 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.